So, message. I don't know if you guys ever have this experience. I do sometimes when I'm reading the Bible. You know, maybe it should be a fairly straightforward thing, but pretty cut and dry, but sometimes it throws you a curveball. You know, you're, you're reading along, you think you're getting it, you're nodding your head, and you're like, wait a second. I don't know what just got said there, and it doesn't seem to make sense. And usually, at least when that happens to me, like, there will be like a particular verse. I'll be like, I'm tracking, I'm tracking, I'm tracking, I get it. And then there will be a verse that I'll go, I don't know what, you know, this floor squeaky, I wish you could hear that. It, it made it real tense for me there. Like when I, it was like a moment full of tension. Um, so hopefully you felt that. It'll be like, I don't quite know what to do with just that one verse. And sometimes it's because that verse is particularly challenging. And sometimes it's because that verse is, uh, is surprising or seems out of context. It's just like, what do I do with that? Now, if you're anything like me, what you usually do with that is you just pretend it doesn't exist. And you go, yep, I get it, check, let's move on to the next thing. Great reading the Bible today, and then we go on about our business. Tonight's passage, which I'm going to speak on, is one of these types of passages, or was one of these types of passages for me. But see, here's the problem. When you're speaking on a passage, you can't just ignore something and go, well, I get it, all right, let's move on. And this is one of those instances, not where I was surprised, or I was like, oh, I don't know if I can agree with that, or I don't understand what that's, being, what's that's saying. It's rather one of those that just goes, huh, why is that in there? But following that trail, I think, led to some pretty interesting um, pieces of information, uh, and led to some pretty controversial pieces of information, so... Steal your hearts for common commentary? Commentary on controversy. There, that still works. Hold on a second. I get got to get my tiny Bible out of my handy-dandy inner pocket. I did need a music stand after all to put the microphone down. Who knew? Tonight, we'll be in Mark chapter 12, continuing in the Gospel of Mark as we've been in a series, verse 13 through verse 17. So I'm going to read that. Actually, let me give you a touch of context for it first. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and this passage actually find its, finds itself in the midst of a series of um, kind of temptations of Jesus by some of the Jewish leaders and the people who are having a hard time with him to kind of trip him up, to trick him, to find a way that they could accuse him of doing wrong. And there's actually a few of these little discourses and interactions between them and Jesus. So this is one of them. Uh, it It says, later they, which is the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others, 
because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. That line that I was talking about that trips me up with this passage that makes me think that maybe I don't get everything that's going on here is actually the last line, interestingly enough. And they were amazed at him, and they marveled at him in this translation. Same idea. Because when I look at this passage, I go, this is pretty cut and dry. This is pretty straightforward, it seems like to me. Okay? They go to Jesus, they're trying to trick him, they're asking, should we pay the tax or should we not? What's interesting is the Pharisees and the Herodians are a pretty interesting crew to come together because the Pharisees are the people who would have been like, we should absolutely not pay the tax. And the Herodians were the followers of Herod or those associated and affiliated with Herod who was the ruler, who was kind of a vassal of the Roman state. And so they kind of both have an investment in this. If Jesus says, pay it, then the the Pharisees are mad at Jesus. If Jesus says, don't pay it, the Herodians are mad at Jesus. So he finds himself between a bit of a rock and a hard place uh, in terms of his answer. But he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God What is God's? And so I look at this passage, I read it simply, and I go, well, okay, I get this, right? Okay, there's a realm of the political, and we have kind of dues to pay in terms of civic duty and and political and stuff like that. And then there's the realm of the spiritual, and we have dues to pay and responsibilities and, and duty there. And that's kind of how that works, and that's what Jesus is saying. But here's the thing. While that may make sense to me, When I get to the end of the passage, Jesus hasn't blown my mind. My draw isn't dropped. I'm not marveling. I'm not amazed at what he said. It seems pretty straightforward. It seems pretty cut and dry. And then I I look at it and I go, huh, maybe I need to take another look at this passage. Because somehow what Jesus said was absolutely mind-blowing to them. So I look back. I dig a little bit deeper. And I think that that's a really good thing. Because we get after some of the stuff that's actually going on here that you need to dig a little bit to get to. That you need to understand a little bit of the context. You need to understand what was going on to make sense of this. So I look back, and the first thing that catches me there is I go, why are they amazed at him? Why are they amazed at him? What's going? I'm digging. I'm looking. I'm trying to figure out. And all of a sudden, I realize that Jesus asks them for a coin. They are asking him about paying the imperial tax to Caesar. You would pay the imperial tax 
with a Roman denarius, and Jesus doesn't have one. He doesn't have the money on himself that they are asking him about. That's telling. That tells us something about his situation, where he is with the whole thing, how he's feeling about it, just the simple act that he asked for one. And then he holds this coin up. He looks at it, maybe as if he's never seen one before. And this coin, this is what a denarius looks like. On one side of it, on one side of it, it's very important, I had to put that down so I could hold up a pretend coin for you. (laughs) On one side of it, what if I had one? I was just like, what's up? No big deal. Like 2,000 years old. Let's pretend. Let's all enjoy that together. Um, Actually, maybe I don't want one, given what I'm about to say. On one side of it is a picture of Caesar. And it says, Augustus, the inscription says, Augustus, son of the, of the divine Augustus. And on the other side of it is a woman sitting on a throne, and it says, the high priest. You know what this is? It's an idol. It's a little miniature Assault on God. Caesar claiming divinity, the high priest. It's no surprise that Jesus doesn't have one of these on himself. Because this little thing is a claim to that which is owed only to God. This little coin is something that is saying, this is the divine. This is the high priest. This Roman Empire is claiming to be divine. All of a sudden, my assumptions about this passage get mixed up. All of a sudden, I'm going, wait a second. Is there a spiritual realm? And is there a a political or civic realm? Or are those two things... Maybe competing with each other for the same claims, for the same loyalty, asking for the same thing here. Is Caesar wanting that which is due to God? Because this coin is asking for homage, is asking for allegiance. That when you use this coin, when you look at this coin, this coin is is communicating something. And that is that this is what is owed respect, loyalty, connection. Now, there were going to be some Jews who had a problem with that. That's why this is such a hot-button issue for Jesus to be able to deal with. And Jesus' answer to this is, this coin, this thing... This idol will give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what is God's. And there's a connotation there that Jesus is making of that coin kind of being of the things of Caesar and not being of the things of God. 
Does that make sense? And there's a certain, when, when that coin is used, there's a certain participation in the way that Caesar does things and the things of Caesar to use that coin. So there's this competition. It's not two realms. It's this, it can be this one realm where God is due certain things and Caesar wants those things. And so Caesar's government is set up competing for the exact same loyalties. This is where we get controversial. Enjoy. Let me share a story with you. Not too long ago, there was a Catholic school professor by the name of Stephen Kobasa. He worked at a Catholic school for 25 years. And in the middle of a semester, with him having a family to support, after working at this school for 25 years, the archdiocese decided to fire him on the spot. The reason why is because he refused to display an American flag in his classroom. And they fired him. And they gave no explanation for why they fired him. They said, they said, we have come to see, or the arch, it's the opinion of the archdiocese, that it is important that all Catholic classrooms display an American flag. That was their only answer. People wrote in, concerned citizens wrote in to the archdiocese to try to get a reasoning why that was important. And it was just this assumption that it was important that the flag be there in the classroom. It was important enough that this individual who had worked there for 25 years was fired in the middle of the semester and was unable to, like, had to figure things out, scramble to be able to support his family. And his reason for not displaying the flag that he gave, because he did at least give a reason in this conflict, was um, that he wanted teaching to be based on no symbol other than the cross of Christ. Is that my heart beating? Am I nervous? All right. See, the future is looking bright. Oh, that thing's not up there, the glowy guy. I think when we do our podcasts, yeah. Oh, I think when we do our podcasts, people have to be so stinking confused about half the stuff that happens. What are they talking about? <laughs> people who I think sometimes listen to the podcasts are nodding their head. Vehemently. Okay. The American flag is an interesting thing. Think about the way that we treat the flag. Um, it's, it's expected that we would have a tremendous amount of reverence for it. 
there are certain ways to fold the flag. There are certain ways to display the flag. It can't be displayed at night unless there's a light on it. Uh, it can't be displayed in the rain. When a flag goes out of use, it needs to be cremated or buried. These are the rules of the American flag. Uh, Supreme Court Justice Rehnquist, when he was um, evaluating a law about uh, protecting the flag from desecration, said that the American people hold the flag with an almost, I quote, mystical reverence. The the man uh, who wrote the Pledge of Allegiance, if you go back to that, name of Francis Bellamy, uh, that is not Bill Bellamy's great-great-grandfather or anything, which is, I don't know, maybe a good thing. Oh, bad joke. I thought that was, was going to go over. In testing, in practice, that one was a riot. Uh, Bill Bellamy's grandpa, everybody. Francis Bellamy. Let's, lyrics, man. Okay. This is, this is really interesting. Really interesting. Especially when we consider the fact that the Pledge of Allegiance did not originally include the words under God. Francis Bellamy said that the Pledge of Allegiance was intended to be learned through, uh, that it was intended to be learned by school children through ritual repetition, much like the Catechism or the Lord's Prayer. Let me say that one more time. The Pledge of Allegiance was to be learned by school children through ritual repetition much like the Catechism or the Lord's Prayer. I think we need to consider the possibility that perhaps our government, and perhaps governments in general, also compete with God for the same loyalties that are due to him. Think about this for a minute. I mean, we just got out of another fun political season. All sorts of advertisements, I think. God, that I don't watch much TV, but, you know, you hear stories about this and that and the other thing. And, you know, this time around, there was kind of a big pushback from the Republicans and the Tea Party thing and, you know, lots of talk of kind of setting, setting the country back on course and getting things going again. And I'd see things on Facebook, which, man, Facebook gets vicious around political seasons, you know. Um, and, you know, people talking about the idea of, like, um, you know, I really, now that these people have won, uh, I really hope that something good can happen. And, and a lot of, like, excitement about that and these ideas of, like, you know, putting things right again, kind of fixing the world, fixing our country, those sort of ways to talk about things. Now, think back just two years uh, to when Barack Obama was running his campaign. Do you remember the buzzwords for that? There were two big buzzwords. Hope and change. 
hope and change, setting the world right, putting things back on course. Maybe the political world and maybe the way that government works is also competing with God for what we put our hope in, what we put our trust in, how we expect this world to be good or to get better or to be set right. We have to ask ourselves, do we think that is God's job or do we think that's the government's job? I think it's God's job. I think he's the one who deserves hope for anything good to happen. Let's talk about this a little bit per minute. Is it possible for God to work through government? Right? For, okay, we can hope in the government to do something good because God can use the government in order to do something good. I believe that. I believe that God can work through the government. I think that's biblical. I think God can work through lots of things to do good to accomplish his purposes in the world. So I want to put that out there. I think that in order for him to do that, optimally, I mean, God can work through anything, right? Like, He can work through me having a disease or breaking my leg or someone punching me in the nose. You know, he can work through anything. But in order for God to do that optimally, what that requires is for that government to be a government that is not competing with God, but instead submitted to God. That it is, is in fact, as has been added to the Pledge of Allegiance, that it is, in fact, a nation under God. So then what we have to do is we have to analyze, we have to evaluate in our situation. Well, first off, if we think it's possible for any government to be completely submitted to God. And secondly, and more um, directly to our situation, is if we think that our government is in fact under God and is, is, is kind of like a sub-ministry of God, right? That does the work of the Lord in the world. They're accomplishing his purposes. I think the criteria for that is pretty pretty straightforward. That that organization, that that um, government, that that uh, institution would choose to do the things that God wants it to do pretty much all the time, or at least always be trying to do that, and choose not to do the things that God wants it to not do. Right? Does that seem fair? I think so. So, regardless of whether, I don't know where everybody falls out politically here, but let's say, uh, regardless of where you are on the spectrum here, I think that we can evaluate the United States government and we can go, man, I'm not sure I can say that that is unequivocally true. In fact, I'm pretty sure I can say that's not unequivocally true. Now, maybe you take issue with the fact that abortion is legal. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Maybe you take issue with the fact that the government is funding stem cell research. Maybe you take issue with the fact that our government sends people to war. 
Maybe you take issue with the fact that our government doesn't have enough care and support for the people who are living on the streets. I think about everybody in here would take issue with one of those things. And if we look at the history of our country, which is kind of sometimes hard to do, we go, well, geez, maybe we've got a history of doing things pretty consistently that aren't in line and persisting in things that aren't in line with what God would have us do. I mean, including, like, before we were officially set up as a government, but a lot of the same type folks committing mass genocide against Native Americans. Go to Lane Deer. That was my question. See some of the results of these sorts of things. We got to look at it hard. Again, I think God is capable of working in these realms. I certainly do. But as much as we see our government competing with God for our hope, for our trust, for our allegiance, we have to say, if that's happening, I'm going to choose God because no one can serve two masters. If there's a competition, I encourage you to pick the side of the omnipotent one. Now, someone might say, okay, let's take a look at Romans 13, right? Romans 13 is the part that says that you need to submit yourself to authorities, uh, you know, and they are God's, uh, basically God's servants in punishing those who do bad, in rewarding those who do good. And if you uh, are doing good, you have nothing to fear from the government, Paul talks about this. Let me address that for a second because I think it's valid. Um, Number one, it's important for us to understand that Paul in that passage is talking about the idea of submitting to a government, not necessarily obeying a government. Okay? So submission and obedience are not necessarily the same thing. One is to do everything it tells you to do. The other is kind of to live under its rules. And I think that what Paul's saying here is contingent upon the idea that they are being good rulers, that they are, in fact, punishing those who do evil and rewarding those who do good. And if you're doing good, you have nothing to fear from them. Because we see in other passages in the Bible that in Revelation 13, Revelation 13, that um, the Christians are called there to rise up against an oppressive government, to kind of fight against that. We see John and Peter in the book of Acts when they go to the Sanhedrin and, uh, you know, they're, they're talking to them and they're dealing with those who rule over them and they're in conflict. And John and Peter say, hey, judge for yourselves whether we should obey God or obey you. And then we have this passage here. So there's an idea of it being contingent upon a government being fully submitted to what God would have it do, which I think is pretty hard. It's pretty hard to do. It's pretty pretty big shoes to fill, honestly. And I can't do it as an individual. And I'm sorry, but you can't do it as individuals. So imagine getting a whole bunch of people together who all can't do it as individuals, giving them power 
and then expecting them to always make the choices that God wants them to make and never uh, avoid the things that God wants them to avoid. That's the situation we find ourselves in. Now, maybe some of you are tracking with me. I hope some of you are tracking with me. For those of you who, uh, who are like, oh yeah, totally. I mean, you're not saying anything that surprises me. I don't know why you didn't get this passage, because I've always understood that. I want to say that this isn't limited just to government. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That's what he's getting into, what he's getting after. But it isn't limited to just government in your life. Are there other things that could compete with God for your loyalty, for your allegiance, that could compete with God for their ability to give you hope and trust in something? Yes, absolutely. For some of you, this would be a relationship. That in that relationship, you have dedicated yourself to it, which is a good thing, dedicating yourself to a relationship. But you have dedicated yourself to it in such a way that you need it in order to feel good about yourself. You need it to work. You need it to go as you want it to go. And if it goes as you want it to go, you feel good about yourself. All is right in the world. Things are good. So your hope, your allegiance is there because your hope is in it to make things right in you. If that is competing with God in your life, you need to choose to pledge your allegiance in a greater way to God and put your hope and trust in him and satisfaction in him. Because I'll tell you as a married man, if you guys haven't experienced this yet, most of you probably have, my wife cannot make me happy. Like she cannot solve my problems. She could not make it all right in my world. She cannot satisfy me in the way that only God is intended to satisfy me. She's great. I love her. She's wonderful. She's amazing. But that's not her job. And if I make it her job, she's always going to fall short. For some of us, this is our jobs. We place, we pledge our allegiance to a job and we place hope in that job to give us what we need to have to feel good about ourselves, to be satisfied. Sometimes that's, that's money. You know, if I make enough money, that's going to make things right in the world. You know, money can't buy happiness. I don't know, man. I've got to try it. Don't know until you've tried it. You know, we, we work and work and work after that. And even for good reasons sometimes. Like maybe the idea is getting out of debt. I'm all for getting out of debt. If you go back uh, a few months and I've got a sermon about not getting into debt and getting out of debt. I'm all about it. But if we place our allegiance in that, in that work, in order to make things right in the world, it's not going to satisfy. Getting out of debt doesn't solve all your problems. Getting out of debt doesn't give you the hope for something good to exist, for good work to be done. That's God's job. And if this happens for you in the realm of your maybe your hobbies or your pastimes, I like to play board games. I like to play cards. If I lose, uh, I really don't like that. <laughs> if and when I need to win in order to be satisfied, in order to be content, in order to have trust and hope that things are good and that I'm good, I need to evaluate that and I need to find out how to 
pledge my allegiance to God and trust in him for those things. And I th- honestly, I, I think that the main way to find out how to is be aware of the fact that it's a reality and begin to move in that direction. Be aware that you need to put those things down or put them in their proper place and move towards God. And I think that's true in terms of the way that we engage with the political, the way that we engage with the governmental as well that Jesus is getting after here. Now, I don't want to ignore one important fact here, and I want to deal with this as well. Jesus is dealing with money. He is holding up a coin. He's talking about taxes. He's talking about money. That's what he's dealing with here. So I don't want to not touch on that because I think it's important because that coin, as I said, that Jesus held was a little piece of propaganda. That money was a little piece of information and culture dissemination that the Romans put out. Like, here's your idols. Here's what you're supposed to do with your life. You know, cherish these. Value them. They're worth something. Oh, look, at Caesar on there. How nice. Oh, divine master. Great. The Romans gave these coins out, and these coins were little pieces of propaganda. They communicated something, and they influenced the worldview of the people who used them. They were attempting to set forth a worldview, or else they would have just had a plain piece of silver. They were trying to communicate something. Now, I want to say, I want to go so far as to say that money is also, like our money, dollar bills, is also a disseminator of worldview. Money itself, the way that it works. I mean, think about it. It's like, when countries link their currency with our currency, when they link their economies with our economy through strong trade or even li- linking their dollar bill or whatever, or their, their form of currency with our dollar bill, look at the way that culture is spread and changes. I mean, go to Tokyo. Like, you can, I, here's a tip for you. Well, tip for you. If you have Converse, buy a pair of Converse, brand new, $35 or whatever, wear them for like a year until they're completely worn out and trashed and ripped out, and then you can sell them to a kid in Japan for more than you bought them for brand new. At least it used to be that way. Dollar bills and money in general affect the way that we view the world. And the most obvious way that they do that is they spread... They create a culture where we assume that we have to have money on some level in order to be able to be okay. In order to be able to be taken care of, we've got to have money. Okay? I don't care. I mean, I live in a bus, you know? Like, I don't have a whole lot of stuff. Um, I still am influenced by this worldview that... Money is a necessity. I can't really picture the way that life would work without thinking really hard, without having money. And that, I'm telling you, is a worldview assumption. That you have to have money in order to be okay. I'm not talking about you have to have a million dollars to be okay. Maybe some of us think that. I don't think many of us think that. But that you have to be able to make and spend money in this world in order to make it. And that is a way that we participate in the system 
that is competing with God by needing to have this money in order to make life work. Uh, Tim Dunbar, who used to work here, uh, was kind of the master of signatures, or is kind of the master of signatures on, um, on emails. You know, you can kind of add your own little quote or whatever down at the bottom or just put your name and address and stuff. Tim always had really interesting quotes on the bottom of his emails. And one that he had a little while ago, I don't know if he still has it, um, but it said, uh, it was a quote by Jeff Tweedy, who's the lead singer of Wilco, and it said, our love is all of God's money. Our love is all of God's money. And so in light of this passage, in light of what we're talking about, in light of these things that I've brought to you for your consideration in your own lives, I want to offer one more thing. Perhaps, perhaps we can begin to think about how we might be able to craft a world and a worldview where we see love as our currency, as our primary way of engaging with each other and taking care of each other and making this world work for each other. And I mean that super practically. Super practically. Like, perhaps, for you, you spend a lot of time at work and you know that you've been putting too much trust in the ability to make money there in order to take care of yourself and hope in that. And maybe you could spend a little bit less time and learn some sort of uh, skill that you can give to someone out of love, literally just give, a, give it as a currency to them. Like, you could learn how to cook really well, or grow food, or, or be a better carpenter, or, or um, or so. My wife is just making sewing. Images up, up in there. Charades, we're great at it. Rhymes with so. Um, perhaps you can spend some time learning how to give things to people out of love that makes them a little less dependent on needing money to do everything. The early church took care of each other. They sold what they had. They took care of each other's needs. They took care of everything that people needed to have at that point in time. And I think that if we learned to love each other in that way, in a very practical, hands-on way, if we learned how to do that, we could really become a community. Because the words community and fellowship, I think so often in church context, basically means meeting together, maybe eating together, and singing some songs together. But could we do life together? Could that be our currency, our foundation that we build on? Because I really do believe that our love is all of God's currency. And we can give out of what he's given to us, which is a heck of a lot of love. I think it's important for us to take communion tonight. So we're going to do that. I think it's important because it can allow us to recenter ourselves on the way that God does things and evaluate and have a fresh engagement with the person of Jesus Christ. Because you know, Jesus went to the cross. 
Jesus Christ went to the cross in order to change the world. I talked uh, about a month ago about the way that in the triumphal entry, Jesus rode into the city on a donkey, whereas the, the king would have come in on a horse with a big procession and maybe some slaves and some banners and, you know, big, big deal stuff. Jesus came in on a donkey. Instead of Jesus coming in and taking over the system, the way that he chose to change the world was to go and to die on that cross and to make things right. That is a dramatically different paradigm than the paradigms that our governments, that our institutions, that our own minds give us. And I want to pledge allegiance to Jesus and his way of doing things and try to follow that. And it's different than our world's way of doing things. It is. Dramatically. It's not like, it's not like turquoise and seafoam green different. It's like red and green different. It's very different. Before he went to the cross, Jesus met with his disciples and he broke the bread at the Last Supper. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Jesus wants to dine with us. Jesus wants to connect with us. Jesus wants us to walk in his way and move in his direction. And I invite you to do that. I invite you to do that through communion tonight and beyond. So we're going to have three stations. You can come up and uh, tear off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice and take it back to your seat or go outside or take it right there. I want to encourage you to do business with God while you're doing it. So if, if you are a follower of Jesus or want to follow Jesus, come on forward and do that. If you're not sure where you stand with that right now and you want to come forward and receive a blessing, we'll have people at each station who will pray briefly, real quick, for you. And if you want to do that, just cross your hands over your chest right when you get up there and they'll just say a blessing for you. We want to, want to offer that as well. And if you are gluten-free, over here there will be a station that is completely gluten-free. Uh, and you don't have to be gluten-free to go there. But if you are, uh, I would suggest going to that one. One final thought to leave you with. Jesus says to give back whatever, you're, whatever is competing with him for your allegiance, to go ahead and give back to it whatever it is given to you. And then to give to God what he has given to you. Which I'm pretty sure is everything. Amen.